the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown podcast. I'm James Miller, journalist, author, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit and indeed to find out more about this general election, which will obviously have a big impact on what happens on the Brexit front. To that end, I gathered a large and extremely clever panel to discuss things this week. I was joined again by Professor Sir John Curtis, the Senior Fellow at the UK and Changing Europe, and by the editors of essentially their party's preeminent blogs. So, Mark Wallace, the Executive Editor of Conservative Home, Mark Pack, the Editor of Lib Dem Newswire, and Sienna Rogers, the Editor of Labour List. And we talked about all things election, but you kind of get two podcasts in one in this because uh, I started off talking to uh, John Curtis at some length to sort of set the scene on what is going on in the election as it stands before we get into the party political aspect of it. Come back at the end for some more uh, gubbins from me, including the details of this week's competition, in which you can win a limited edition Brexit breakdown mug. They are going, well, reasonably fast. I mean, they're basically going at the same pace as these podcasts go out. Anyway, come back at the end for the question and uh, how to enter. Listen closely because the answer will be in the podcast. Here we go. John, in the last couple of weeks since we last spoke, anything changed? Any interesting trends that you've picked up? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, the Conservatives are still clearly ahead in the polls. If you simply take the average of the polls that came out this week, um, the Tory lead is currently at 12 points. They've made some ground, but so also have Labour, and the net effect is the lead is still very similar to the 13-point lead we had at the beginning of the campaign. However, there is now one reason why we need to look a little bit underneath the polls, because in the wake of the Brexit Party's decision not to fight Conservative-held seats, um, nearly all the pollsters now, there's one left that's still to do so, have changed what they're doing so that they are either <coughs> asking people um, not simply how you would vote, but here's the list of the parties or the candidates standing in your constituency, which one will you vote for? Um, or they are asking people, well, what would you do if your party wasn't standing? And then they work out after the interview, where is this person uh, living and reallocate as necessary? Now, the decision of the Brexit party to stand down in Tory-held seats can be expected to increase the Tory party vote in virtually every Tory-held seat, and certainly the Tory lead in virtually every Tory-held seat. But given that we are looking at a polling situation where we've got something like a 5% swing from Labour uh, to the Conservatives since 2017, we would expect the Conservatives to win, more or less, every seat that they're defending against the Labour Party. Anyway, there might be the odd accident somewhere or other, but essentially the Brexit Party standing down in Labour in Conservative-held seats is irrelevant. Now, there's a much smaller number of seats, a few in Scotland, a few uh, where there's a battle between the Conservatives and the Democrats, where the Brexit Party standing down might make a difference. But it does therefore almost undoubtedly mean that the tally in terms of seats for the Conservative Party 
uh, will be somewhat less than you would otherwise have expected given its share of the vote. So that's point one. And then the second thing you can then actually do, and you can do it for, I've done this for example, both last week's polls and this week's polls, is to look to see what has happened in those polls which have changed their method in the last week. So they've introduced, they switched to either reallocating or asking people how they, um, how they would vote given the current constituency, and those that haven't switched either because they're still doing it the old way or they've done it the new way both times, okay? And what you discover if you do that is that the Conservative vote is down by, on average by about one and a half points in the ones that have not changed method, whereas Labour is up by two. So I suspect it is the case that uh, the, there's been rather more of a narrowing of the Conservative lead that really matters than if you would get from the headline numbers in the polls. And to that extent, at least, you know, the last week has been mildly encouraging for the Labour Party, but I wouldn't put it any stronger than that. OK, interesting. So things are, are moving. And last time we spoke, you said this is a Brexit election. Yeah. Still stand by that? Oh, yeah. It's still the case that around 80% of people um, who are who voted Leave are going to vote for the Tories the Brexit Party. It's just that now the vast bulk are going to vote for the Conservative Party. We now have 69% of the Leave vote saying they're going to vote for the Conservatives, whereas just four weeks ago that figure was just 55%. Meanwhile, the Conservatives have not gained any ground at all amongst Remainers. They just have the 18% of the Remain vote. It is fixed. So both the, both the level of support and the dynamics of support is clearly determined by Brexit. On the Remain side, um, the Cons Labour Party has had some success in squeezing the Democrat vote. We're now looking at the Labour Party at about 44%. Amongst Remainers and the Democrats around 26, 27 points, and that's that gap is wider than it was four weeks ago. But amongst Leave voters, the Labour Party has not made any significant progress. It's just got 14% of them. It's uh, that figure is little more than half of what Labour got last time, and Labour's attempts to triangulate across the two communities do not appear to be working. And basically, therefore, the dynamics is a movement within the Remain group from Liberal Democrat towards Labour, and a, and a very clear dynamic on the other side of Brexit Party supporters going towards the Conservatives amongst, amongst Leave voters. And the two have movements have effectively cancelled each other out, subject to my caveat towards the end of my last answer, and that therefore we still have the Tories noticeably ahead, even though the level of support for parties that are in favour of Brexit is no higher than the level of support for parties in favour of a second referendum. And your other prediction was that this election will see more MPs from parties other than the big two than ever before. Your yeah. prediction, your one prediction. Yeah, I know. Right I, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not quite so scary it was. I mean, the, the figure is 88, and we're still not necessarily going to be that far short of it. The, the, the advance in the, in, in the polls for the Tories in general does mean that their position in Scotland looks somewhat stronger than it did, but it's still potentially quite fragile. And there's no sign of the SNP vote going down. It's just a question of whether the, the Tory goes, vote goes up enough to hang on to some of their seats so you, you know you're still looking at uh, more than 40 SNP MPs you know 18 from Northern Ireland guaranteed um, uh, um, uh, Caroline Lucas you know almost guaranteed interesting question as to how many if any of the uh, independent Tories make it I think Dominic Grieve is the one that most people think has got the best chance um, and then it's a question of just what the Democrats pick up and the difficulty about the Democrats I mean, you know, their vote has gone down, so therefore I'm less confident about the prediction. But what we really don't know is just where they're going to do well, because their vote is wholly now virtually a Remain vote. So that's why West London is getting really excited about Liberal Democrats, 
but why we're not terribly sure that they're necessarily going to do terribly well in Durban and Cornwall. And the net effect of these things is very difficult to anticipate. But we're, st we're still going to get a lot of third-party MPs. Maybe whether we just quite get over the 88 mark, we'll have to wait and see. Well, it's going to be awkward. You never make predictions. You make one, well, you make one prediction and it's not go. going to turn out right. That's go. going to be a disaster. Um, okay, well, listen, uh, we'll come on to what's going on in different seats. Let's start with the... Uh, well, tell you what, let's not start with the manifesto. Let's start with... I'll just come back to you, John, for one more before I ask everybody else to contribute. Manifestos, uh, TV appearances. What cuts through most with the public? Well, they're not necessarily separate from each other. I mean, I, I think the, the answer I would give you is that what matters about both is the extent to which they either simply reinforce what the electorate already know or whether they impart new information that gets across. And either way, what is crucial is the ability of the parties to turn its um, proposals into a narrative that the public understand as opposed to all the broad detail and then the and, the and the extent to which you are then able to sustain that narrative against detailed criticism. So the problem for the Tories in 2017 with their manifesto was that their narrative was strong and stable Theresa. The manifesto became part of a broader story whereby that narrative could not be sustained because uh, A, discouraged wasn't that keen on campaigning, but B, there, were, there was the, the odd U-turn. Um, so it all became weak and wobbly. So the point therefore, voters learned something new and therefore it undermined their narrative. I think the problem the Labour Party's uh, been facing a little bit um, since they released their manifesto is, you know, the, the, the narrative is, is meant to be that the 5% will pay and the 95% will benefit, but then you discover that actually, you know, that's not quite right. So therefore, you know, because you've oversold what you've got to say, um, you lose the broader narrative. Equally, however, on the Conservative side, and I'll be interested in what, in, in what your reaction is to this, is you know, the Tories have just decided to be so safety first that I'm just kind of going, so the, the, the narrative was meant to be get Brexit done and unrelease the nation's potential, but it now seems that we release the nation's potential by doing nothing. Uh, and that is a well, very, and so there's, there's, I think there's an interesting question there as to whether the Tories have come up with a manifesto that again doesn't quite fit the narrative. All right, I'll come back to that safety first issue, but it's interesting what you say about the interplay between manifestos and TV appearances because we're recording this the day after the Andrew Neil interview with Jeremy Corbyn, which the internet said was a disaster. Would you agree, Sienna, that it was a disaster, or does the sort of does the radicalism of the manifesto sort of cancel out? Uh, what might have happened or might not have happened last night? I certainly don't think that um, the manifesto promises can cancel out what, what happened in the Andrew Neil interview. I don't know how much cut-through it's going to have. I suspect that the, when Boris Johnson does his Andrew Neil interview, if he does go ahead with that, that would get you know be more, sh more widely viewed, more shared than the C Jeremy Corbyn one. Because actually the Jeremy Corbyn one was c quite confusing to watch. It, w it was just sort of baffling because... Andrew Neil kept interrupting and Jeremy Corbyn didn't so he you know it was the kind of the interview that Jeremy Corbyn can't do because he is quite long-winded as a person <laughs> so it he can't give short direct answers to questions he just doesn't like doing that so that you know that's one reason why it didn't go well it's just simply the interviewing style it's just completely made for someone who's the opposite of Corbyn in that sense but also, obviously, I mean, a lot of Labour activists, including myself, are very disappointed that he couldn't just say, 
yes, I'm sorry for the hurt caused to Jewish community and we're going to do better because that's obviously the only acceptable answer to that question. And considering he has issued those apologies before, that kind of stubbornness of not doing that again just seemed to be quite baffling to a lot of Labour activists. A lot of people after the interview said, oh, looking forward to Boris getting his grilling next week or whenever, because we don't at this stage know when it would be. Um, Mark, Tory Mark, because I've got two Marks, so I don't know what I'll have to, how I'll, I'll differentiate. Uh, and unbelievably, I've got Tory Mark on my left. I meant to put you on the sitting on my right. So, you know, it's, it's, so it makes sense. Um, if you were advising Boris Johnson, you'd tell him, uh, run away. Don't do the Andrew Neil interview. I'm only going to lose, right? He, he can't run away from this. I simply think it would be the wrong thing. The fact is, there is a there is a very fine line, as Theresa May discovers, between playing it safe and hiding. And the simple fact is, that actually, so much of this election, the picture's been queered by what happened in 2017. Yeah. Um, mm. It's impossible to really overstate the degree to which Conservatives carry with them the kind of psychological scars of the 2017 election. Things make us break out in a cold sweat, like seeing a lectern be put out in a street or, <laughs> have, or, or, or having an early poll lead in a campaign is now something that mm. makes, makes you nervous rather than, rather than happy. Um, and, but this, that, that's also one of those things. My advice to him would be prepare, prepare, prepare. Are you looking forward to Boris's grilling there? I mean, I, I am uh, from a journalistic perspective, certainly. And, and <laughs> from a Tory perspective? From a Tory perspective, I think anybody will be trepidatious about it. The Prime Minister, I think, should, should, should be trepidatious about facing Andrew Neil. But I'm, I'm also pleased that Frankly, these interviews are much more enlightening mm. and incisive than the so-called debates are. And there's also the, uh, the fascination of looking at Andrew Neil, who his hair just gets more and more interesting as time goes on. I, mean, I don't know, we were watching him last night and said, is it just me or is Andrew Neil increasingly resembling a sausage? Hi, Arnon here. Sorry to butt in, but I just wanted to say, if you like this podcast, which I'm sure you do, then please rate it wherever you get your podcasts from. You'll be doing a public service because it makes it easier for others to find us. While you're at it, go to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk, and sign up for our fantastic newsletter. Not only the latest on Brexit, but the latest on the best football team in the world. Every two weeks, free, in your inbox. Do it now. Jo Swinson, of course, had her TV nightmare mm. moment on Friday. Why the TV companies are putting these debates on Friday, I do not know. Um, you know, obviously, I've got nothing better to do, but other people <laughs> might. Um, she got trashed on Question Time, um, but does well, it matter? Well, the, the obviously, the loyalist response is to point out that three uh, percent of the audience were Liberal Democrats in, uh, in terms of what the BBC has sort of said about how they made up the audience. So it's perhaps not surprising that there were not as many people applauding her as others. But the more general Nobody point, the, I think the more, the more general point, though, as you say, is that I think these things really matter when they chime in with a broader story. So actually, I, I watched for, for entertainment and into one of the TV debates between Boris uh, Johnson, Ken Livingstone and Brian Paddock back from one of the previous London mayor elections on Newsnight. You watched that recently? Exactly, I did recently. <laughs> and Boris Johnson gets into a huge tangle over the cost of his promises about buses. And at the time, you know, political activists in, say, Labour and the Liberal Democrats and all of them, ah, isn't that funny? Politically, it didn't cost him at all. Mm. Because at the time, it didn't fit into a wider picture of who is Boris Johnson, why might you want to vote for him or not vote for him. Um, and I think in that sense, actually, Joe Swinson's appearance on Question Time is, is slightly similar in the sense that the Liberal Democrats are clearly not one of the, the the big two or three parties at the moment, clearly one of the smaller parties. And in that sense, you know, lots of people not liking the Liberal Democrats is what happens if you are a smaller party. OK, well, that kind of brings us on to the manifestos. I mean, John, you said it's a, a, a safety first manifesto from the Tories. Um, given uh, Johnson is not perhaps thought of as a safety first sort of character, mm. 
Um, you know, are you disappointed by the Tory manifesto, Tory mark? Not, not, not particularly. Though, though that hangover from 2017, which is still kind of crashing on in people's brains that I mentioned earlier, is of course the, the manifesto looms really, really large in that. And I think the one thing to remember about this week in particular, being manifestos, Corbyn on TV, is this week for what, 8 million voters is polling day. It, postal votes are going out. They started going yeah. out at the end of last mm-hmm. week. They're going out right now. And you, those people who vote, vote in large numbers straight away. So actually, the Conservatives don't want to sabotage their, their own campaign like they did last time with the manifesto. They, frank, frankly, they're ill-judged. Um, they also don't want to sabotage this particular moment. And actually, if you've got what John described, it, I think sounds pretty accurate, perhaps a, a slow deflation of the, of, of the, of the lead, um, then actually you, you certainly don't want to kind of destroy that. Yeah, but it has, but it has see, I think the, inter- I mean, you know, the question is whether the Labour Party can pick this up, but it, it has potentially exposed uh, the Tories to a line of attack. So let me give you one. So at the moment, the Conservatives have been not unreasonably saying, look, you know, Jeremy Corbyn can't give us an answer on the central issue of this election, which is Brexit. Um, and why is Corbyn saying I'm going to be neutral? Because I want to bring the country together. So what do we now discover is the Tory position on the central domestic problem facing this country, which is social care. I'm not going to tell you what I think because I want to unite the country. It seems to me that it's remarkable how actually the Conservative Party on the major domestic issue of our time has ended up in much the same tangle as the Labour Party has. There's a question whether the Labour Party can exploit this or not. But actually it seems, because the problem I think you now have, potentially, it just depends on whether the Labour Party can exploit it, is... Actually, is it simply get Brexit done full stop rather than get Brexit done and unleash the nation's potential? And in particular, I think the reason why it, it, it strikes as one is rather odd is that you know when Boris first became Prime Minister, or indeed during his leadership campaign, it was all about we're going to spend more money on this. Now, OK, it was more about infrastructure than current spending, and that was a bit of a slight of hand. But there was this set, you know, and we're going to get the, domestic, the country's domestic priorities done. Now, all of a sudden... Apparently, the country's domestic priorities is to do what we've been doing anyway inside the European Union. So, uh, it, one is just wondering well, hang on, has the party, in being so safety first, just ended up taking the air out of its own balloon? Particularly given, because again, one of the things I think the Tories now have to worry about, well, there are a number of things the Tories have to worry about, but one of the things they have to worry about is, you know, it, is, it could now be true that you've basically hit the high watermark. In other words, you've squeezed the Brexit Party vote, you've given up on the Remainers, given, and that the Brexit Party vote now isn't much stronger than the UKIP vote was in 2017, uh, uh, you must be beginning to hit the limit. And at that point, when you've really got to hang on what you want, want to, in effect, almost change the message of your narrative, does strike one as well the wrong. I mean, uh, there's two things there. I think, firstly, um, what you say about social care exactly goes back to what I was saying earlier about this very fine line between playing it safe and hiding. Yeah. And I think there's you know they have to be very very careful to resist um, a, a temptation to kind of act illogically and unstrategically and overreact to 2017. Exactly. Like on both sides. On both sides. But I think um, but, but the second element there. I, I mean I also agree. The fact is the Conservative Party has done very, very well in terms of its squeeze and compressing the Brexit party. It's been helped by Nigel Farage explicitly agreeing that he's he's was lying awake at night worrying that he would help Remainers to get into Parliament. Um, but there, there clearly is, if you look at the, the potential movement between voters, who whether they say they might change their minds or not, the potential for trade is clearly between Labour and the Liberal Democrats yeah. now, the vast majority yeah. of potential voters who might switch. Yeah. And so there is a concern 
frankly, when Joe Swinton is underperforming, massively changes yes. the narrative now. When, 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 when you said earlier, mm. well, the Lib Dems are a minor party, that wasn't her story mm. at the start. Her sto- story at the start was she's going to, she could be Prime Minister. I think, I think that's, that's a different point, which is if you are Liberal Democrats in this case, there is no right answer to the question, are you going to win this election? And if you say, yes, I'm going to be Prime Minister, people say, ha, no, you're not, look how many MPs you've got. And if, people, and if you say, no, you're not going to be Prime Minister, people say, ha, well, in that case, which of the other parties should we bother voting for? So, you know, whatever answer any third party leader gives, yeah, they're always... It's they're a long-standing dilemma, but I think there's, there, there's a danger for the Conservative Party that the Lib Dems underperform or, yeah. or continue to underperform or get worse. Yeah, yeah, and that, I, I, that is a risk. Absolutely. I mean, I think we yeah. probably said this last time, but, you know, the central thing about and paradox election from the beginning was that Jeremy Corbyn needed Nigel Farage to do well and he hasn't and Boris Johnson needs Joe Swinson to do well and there's, there's reason there to worry about whether she will but either either that she, I mean there are two risks for the Tories one is that Joe Swinson doesn't do terribly well the other is that the Remain vote does get itself organized tactically um, and if it does then the number of Tory seats can begin to fall down to a level that you go hmm it's not so comfortable after all. And, and, and those are things over which the Tories have no control, no control at all. So the difficult thing, I think, for the Tories at this stage is, that in a sense, if, if indeed we're right, they're saying they've reached the high water mark, they're, they're basically treading water for two weeks, hoping to God that the other side haven't learnt to swim in the meantime. The Labour manifesto, mm. uh, I think I saw John saying or writing or something somewhere, Policies in the Labour Manifesto are amazing, and everyone loves them. Yep. Not saying they're amazing, just saying everyone loves them. You might <laughs> yeah, not off the expressing, but you know, amongst the public. Yeah. Um, and yet, that's the sort of the next bit is, and yet somehow uh, they're not shooting up in the polls. What are your thoughts on the, the manifesto? Does it, does it go too far? Is it- uh, I, I don't think the manifesto goes too far. I, I love the manifesto. I'm just going to put that on the table. Just unashamedly love it. You know, Labour, I have to say, have been absolutely delighted by the Lib Dem campaign in, in particular. And that's activists and that's people working in the leader's office. They're all really happy by the fact that they the Lib Dems put out um, you know, an advert talking about skills wallets, which no one understood, and then later clarified what that policy actually meant. And, and also... You know, the offer to private renters, for instance, who were, you know, talking about um, helping them with their deposits, with loans, rather than talking about what Labour is suggesting, which is, you know, huge, huge council house building programme, as well as genuinely affordable homes, and that's a new definition there. So in terms of the offer to young people, I mean, you know, tuition fees, housing, but also redirecting the whole economy towards a green industrial revolution is the labour line and creating a million uh, green friendly jobs and all of that stuff i think labour activists are really happy with all of that in terms of how it's received on the doorstep the issue is of course trust and Mm. deliverability and that's the big thing that labour is struggling on but aren't the two connected if you make yeah big promises you need to back them up with a lot of credibility and there's a gap there uh, yeah, the two the two are connected, but I think from what we hear on the doorstep, activists are confronted with mostly uh, criticisms of Jeremy Corbyn as a person who yeah. could deliver those policies. Yeah. It's not about the policies themselves. That stuff is not what we hear on mm. the doorstep. It is about Jeremy Corbyn as a person. Um, let's talk about the doorsteps. Uh, nice, that's nice and smooth. Thanks, yeah, no, that's really good. Uh, John, which doorstep should we be watching? What what seats should we be keeping on over the next couple of weeks, but particularly perhaps on election nights? Well, I mean, you know, this is not complicated. If the Tories are going to get, um, I mean, the Tories are going to get an overall majority, 
um, then they have to win some of the more marginal seats that the Labour Party is trying to defend. And it would seem, given the way in which the character of their vote has changed and become so much more of a Leave vote and how Labour's vote is now more of a Remain vote than it was in 2017, that in particular those constituencies where there are more Leave voters that are marginal are, are, are the ones that the, the, the Labour Party... Have, you know, so, you know, I think it kind of starts off with somewhere like Dudley North, which, you know, it's, you know, very marginal. And if the Tories don't pick that up, then you really will be asking questions. And then there are some of the other, other ones that, you know, the Tory party have never won before in an election, like Workington or, or Bishop Auckland. But on the other hand, where there was a substantial swing to the Tories last time, which has turned them into marginal seats. I mean, but that, you know, at that at the end of the day is, is the principal territory. It's, it's, it's Labour marginal seats uh, outside of London with a... Um, in many cases, a predominantly vote where probably Boris's fate is going to be uh, sealed one way or the other. Have we all got, uh, I mean, you know, I'm sort of looking for the, the ones to watch because I'd suggest depending on your vintage depends which seat is your seat you remember on election nights. Like, I, I, 92 was my first big election and I remember Basildon and Stephen Amos won and that was it, right? Mm -hmm. Tories are winning. 97 generation would have been probably Enfields, that was when... That Southgate, was yeah, 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 when, yeah, when yeah. Portilla. Yeah, yeah, That was the moment of the drama. You knew it was yeah. a new Labour going to win yeah, weeks yeah. before, you knew the signs yeah. of it. Have you got, have you, have you got a, do you remember a, an election seat that you went, oh, I remember that election, I remember that seat. Does everybody have that, or is that just me? No, 1997, mm. the, the kind of Portilla moments, it yeah. was the iconic one. For, the, for this particular election, what's going to be really interesting is to see if some, some of those seats where you get an idea, say Newcastle under Lyme, where the Conservatives fell so narrowly short last time, but should have had it in the bag, and they didn't, due to, frankly, even fringe effects from the machine just mm. not working properly. Um, at the other end of the scale, if they're doing really, really well, starting to wonder if you watch, say, the Tees Valley, if you look at seats, not just in Torquay, but you look at someone like Sedgefield, if someone like that falls, then you're Oof. talking about a really, Ooh, really, yeah, yeah, really, yeah, yeah, really yeah, yeah, titanic sure, change. Sure, sure. And obviously, the Tees Valley, yeah. it's not universal. You do, the toys do well in the Tees in the way they haven't done the time. Um, for slightly mysterious reasons, but mm. but but if you see something like that, then you're talking about the, the big end of things, which I'm sceptical to. Yeah. I it think be, it'll be a bit weird for actually Liberal Democrats on election night, because the because in a way, if the first few seats, you know, places like Sunderland and so on, show quite weak Liberal Democrat vote news. shares, it, that might well actually be news. very good news because yeah. it might mean the overall vote share is very efficiently distributed. Yeah. So uh, there will be a lot of sort of forced grins, I suspect, from Liberal Democrats saying, actually, no, what looks like bad news might be good news. Because we have seen that a little bit in the constituency polls, so things like work, the Workington constituency poll, Liberal Democrats really nowhere. Yeah. But actually, if that's the pattern, that's good news because it means then votes elsewhere. For me, it normally actually is the seat where I'm at the election count, I must confess. <laughs> um, but I, I think the sort of seats that will really be of interest, I guess, is somewhere like Cheltenham, because that mm. should be a relatively straightforward Liberal Democrat came from the Conservatives under most circumstances yeah. in terms of the margin isn't that big, a, you know, a, a, a Conservative government whose overall ratings are not that high, etc. You'd be thinking that sort of seat should be baked in for the Lib Dems. Whether or not the Lib Dems win it, and if so, by what sort of margin, is likely to be quite telling mm. about then what happens across those other sorts of seats where the Lib Dems actually do really well, even a strong Tory performance, you know, in the North and the Midlands can result in no Boris Johnson premiership. I'm trying to age you, Sienna, would it be... Nuneaton, in twenty fifteen. Would that be? I remember. I remember in twenty fifteen. That was a big one. That was when we knew the Tories were going to win because you're Labour so didn't cruel. get anywhere there. Would that be fair? Or you, do you go back to twenty ten, your first election that you really remember sitting up and watching? Uh, <laughs> I yeah, I was a politics obsessive, um, so, but I don't remember particularly. I don't know specific seats. I mean, I've always just looked at the the seat that I'm. 
I was in my home seat, yeah. and that's Hampstead and Kilburn. And, and mm. 2017, I, I worked for the Labour MP, Tulip Sadiq, and uh, we were not expecting her majority to balloon to such a crazy level. I mean, she had, you know, it's a very marginal seat. Mm. It, when it was Glenda Jackson's, super, super thin, super marginal. Um, but then, you know, throughout the campaign, we were not expecting it um, to go up so much. So that was interesting. I mean, this time round, obviously, the, the seats that I'm going to be looking at are kind of represent uh, Labour's Brexit dilemma because mm. it's two ends of the spectrum. So I'd be looking at something like um, North East Derbyshire, where mm, yeah. actually there's a, there's a unite-backed candidate that the Labour Party feels is very, very strong, personally. And in terms of the, the campaign on the ground there, she, she's going to have a lot of support. Um, Chris Peace. And on the other hand, there's somewhere like Kensington, again, one of the most marginal seats in the country. Emma Dent Code, I mean, will ha- benefit from the fact that, you know, London just has so many Labour activists. You, It's mm. not untypical to have, you know, hundreds of activists turning up on a weekend. Mm. So, I mean, th- one thing that I've noticed in this election campaign is that there is a huge difference in the uh, efficiency and levels of organising between different constituencies. Uh, Grimsby caught my eye. Yeah. That looks interesting because it's not going so well for, for Labour. Now, I no. would have... I mean, it was constituency polling, anyway, obviously one poll and all that sort of stuff, um, which seemed to show that the Tories were doing rather yeah. well. There, Obviously, it's quite Brexity. I would have said at the start of this campaign, you know, the Labour vote is quite sticky, actually. People were sort of underestimating the, the, mm. the, the tradition in the North of voting Labour, and people will just vote Labour come what may. Yeah, vote Labour uh, or not vote at all. Right, but does Grimsby suggest that? Labour vote might not be as sticky as some of us thought. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Grimsby, Grimsby looks really difficult. I think there's going to be some interesting reactions within the Labour Party to those kind of seats like uh, Caroline Flint's as well, where it looks to be a real struggle for Labour to keep hold of that. And I think there's going to be some difficulty in terms of uh, Labour members who feel quite pleased with themselves when they see uh, MPs who voted for Brexit deals who then don't hold on to their mm. Leave seats because they will feel that actually that kind of proves the argument, right, you should stand up for what you believe in. If you're a Remainer, then continue being a Remainer. And also that, you know, a lot of that Labour vote was Remain voting in the first place and there was no point capitulating on that. Yeah. Editing. Interval. One of the things that will be fascinating, coming back partly to what you were saying, Sienna, is that you know Labour clearly has the largest party membership at the moment, is how well directed that membership will be. Mm, um, yeah. And certainly my impression, and obviously take with a grain of salt, you know, people always find it easier to think less of another party, but my impression is that a lot of that Labour enthusiasm is not being directed in the electorally most efficient ways. In a way that actually I've been quite pleasantly. What, what makes you think that? I'm interested. Oh, so look, looking at, for example, um, going through tweets of you know Labour activists sharing photos of groups of people out campaigning in different seats and so on, and you sort of think actually the match of sort of you're where spending, the biggest crowds are. Time analyzing absolutely, stuff, you? absolutely. Oh, right, it's okay. When I'm not watching old news and ITV yeah, debates, yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah, quite, yeah. Um, but by comparison, I, I think the general experience in the Dems this time has been people are much more willing to go where necessary, mm. unlike, for example, 2017, where there are a lot of people who were new and naive. Well, and also, frankly, Mark, Dem there was Ranks. nowhere to go to either, wasn't there? <laughs> there was a little bit of that. <laughs> oh, but one of the classic Lib Dem problems back in 2010, in even a good year for the party, was people got so excited, they went all over, you know, they, yeah, everyone yeah. suddenly thought, I could win where I am, and didn't go, 
actually to the target seat. So, so it'll be interesting to see. I think you know it'll be a lot easier to work it out after the event or not. But my impression is that, that the Lib Dems may have a little bit of an edge there that will help. I think in terms of directing activists to the right places, that Momentum have developed this uh, digital mm. tool, which is the kind of the thing they're most useful at. It's really it's really good during an election period. Um, they have this My Campaign mm. map, and it's mm. really easy to see exactly what the majority is and where you should go, and it's all colour coded and the whole thing. I think the interesting thing is not where they're directed to, but actually just as I was saying before, how good the organising operation is in that in that mm. constituency. So I went to one that we are you know definitely going to lose last weekend. Um, and what did you do that for? <laughs> I didn't know before oh. I got there. <laughs> okay. And oh, well. then I saw how they were organising canvassing sessions, and it made me want to cry. Uh, and take over the whole thing because they were doing it so badly. Whereas, you know, in London, you would never see an operation just being run that badly. It just wouldn't happen. From from a Tory perspective, one of the big... In 2017, they got seduced by the early polls. The early polls, Mm. I think, were were broadly right looking at the local elections. They didn't know if Theresa May was going to mess it up as badly as she did during the course of the campaign. They strayed away from their original target list and they had people... They were telling candidates and activists to go from marginal mm. seats they needed to gain into big Labour yeah. majority seats. Yeah. They lost some some Tory MPs who lost their seats were told not to campaign in their own seat. And so the big threat of that for this election has been: Will Tory act- are Tory activists and candidates willing to trust the centre when they're told go to this target? Uh-huh. You're better mm. used here. The evidence seems to be, such as this, seems to be that they 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 are. Um, I think from the Labour perspective, one thing that a lot of Tories on the ground seem to be picking up is the question of actually necessarily what Labour activists are saying on the doorstep. I know Momentum have got quite into this idea of persuasive conversations, so not just data gathering, but actually trying to win people over on the doorstep. In That's some, radical. It's, it's a risky thing. It's a risky thing to do. How is it risky to well, try and convince people? To well, think partially, partially because Momentum. Well, it depends when you do it in the campaign. Because partially, okay. is what Momentum says is that you should use in their activist handbook is you should use these techniques when you're confronted by somebody who's undecided. The problem is we live in Britain, where undecided, the majority of the time, means please leave me alone, I'm yeah. never going to vote for yeah. you, but yeah. it would be awkward to say so. Yeah. So there are definitely some marginals, where I've been speaking to people, who voters are reporting what turn into arguments with the, with the kind of Labour activists uh, on the doorstep. And I actually think, they I mean think that's a little over-reported, I think. Mm. That, I mean, I have obviously been really pissed off by canvassers in a group that I'm leading uh, you know just talking to someone in the wrong way of course that happens sometimes and it is more of a risk when we're doing you know deep listening and persuasive conversations on the doorstep and all that stuff but i think momentum as this kind of uh, boogeyman that it persuades people to be really argumentative on the doorstep isn't quite the case i think it's what i'm more worried about a lot of the time is people not quite getting the detail of the policy right that's the thing that really frustrates me it sounds a lot like um douglas alexander's four million conversations that he was going to have in 2015 Mm. Like Douglas Alexander is the, the godfather of momentum. And there you go. I didn't expect to come out of this podcast yeah. thinking that. There's, there's a lot of actually continuity that you, a bit like Ed Miliband and the community yeah. organising stuff, and yeah. that has been brought over as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is a whole other story to tell about the state of British politics, which this reflects, which is we've had, what is it, four general elections in a row with rising turnout. We've had, across actually all political parties, a much bigger emphasis on having conversations on the doorstep than was the traditional sort of campaign model a few years ago. There are lots of different measures on which, in that sense, actually democratic engagement is is headed in the right direction, and there's a whole story there that tends not to get told at all. That is uh, a good point, and it's a very grown-up point, so uh, I'm going to go to a very not grown-up point. (laughs) Briefly, uh, first of all, from each of you, we'll start with you, Mark. If it doesn't go well for the Tories, 
Is Boris Johnson the goner? I think it, depend, it depends on the outcome. If he, if, if he loses seats, I think it is conceivable he could hang on, but it depends whether he's in yeah, government. Well, you was the expert that, to that, tell that, me what's going to happen. Look, if the Tories lose seats, they won't be in government. I think, which, which, which means that the likelihood is... I, all I'm saying is it's not completely impossible. I think, we're weirdly, we're in an election where actually either of the main party leaders <coughs> could lose and continue, potentially. Right, it, I'll, it I'll come on to Labour in a minute. I'm talking about yeah. Tories. So um, if Johnson loses seats, you reckon you're probably out of here. So, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, basically, what's more damaging to a leader's authority than that? Okay. Sienna, would the same hold true for Corbyn? Um, I think if Labour loses this election, the, there's going to be a huge battle in the Labour Party over the timing of Corbyn's departure. So I think some of the people on the left are going to be trying to push it as late as September, you know, conference time, and have, you know, the result announced then. And in the meantime, you'd have a deputy leader such as Laura Pidcock or Re- Rebecca Long-Bailey in order to boost their profile, make them look like leadership material and help their campaign. And Jo Swinton, if she loses seats, and given the sort of weird situation with defections mm. and stuff, she's defending a sort of slightly artificially mm. inflated total. Well, we um, could have... Any, she, yeah. Could she be out of I think. I mean, she's got to win her yeah. own seat, first of all. I mean, I think she's... it's extremely unlikely that she would stand down. I mean, unless there is some sort of... Maybe she gets some question about religious faith and she gives a Tim Farron sort of type answer, you know, to Andrew Neil. But, you know, unless there is something massively untoward, partly because, um, you know, it is her first election as party leader. And if you look at previously, for example, Paddy Ashdown in his first general election as, as leader, you know, he did struggle somewhat. Um, and it was a very, in that case, it was a very disappointing result for the Lib Dems on that occasion. Um, and I think this time, yeah, the rooms look rather better than that. So I think, you know, almost certainly the, the outcome will be some version of that was, you know, a step forward in the Liberal Democrat recovery. It was hopefully several steps forward. Um, but therefore that, you know, she will, she will fight. Um, at least one more election and who knows that election might be next year so um, we finish up with recommendations mm. uh, usually to understand Brexit John can I put a recommendation in your in your mouth or have you got one um, yeah I've got one I mean because I thought you might ask me this if I quickly thought of one I mean I mean if you I think you know in terms of you know journalistic coverage of um, you know what the polls are saying informed critical coverage then it's probably difficult to defeat what the Financial Times are doing and John Murdoch Brown in particular so um you know, uh, very much an anorak's paradise, but there's a lot of very good stuff being, to be found there. We're all, we're all anoraks here, let's face it. And obviously the UK Changing Europe Manifesto's report, which is out on Monday the 2nd of December. Oh, I'm sure it's absolutely fundamental and brilliant. Okay, let's go. Um, Mark Wallace, have you got a recommendation yeah, for rep- understanding it, what the hell's going it, on? It's a bit of a quest because the book's now out of print, but there are copies out there, um, which is a book called White Elephant by a guy called William Norton. And William Norton was the agent for the North East says no campaign in the 2004 uh, regional referendum oh. which was run of course by Dominic Cummings mm, yes. so co-run with Conservative Home's columnist James Frain whose wife has wrote the Conservative Manifesto um, and, uh, and William Norton was also involved in, in Vote Leave and it looks <coughs> at two things about this obviously firstly the insight into uh, kind of Cummings-ish uh, anti-politics stuff but also more fundamentally that way in which Sienna said earlier Labour voters in traditional Labour heartlands have just got disenchanted. They may not mm. vote for somebody else, but they've stopped voting. I would chart a huge amount of this back to what was revealed in that referendum, where Labour thought it could take the North East, its 
heart, most heart heartland for granted, and it failed. So find it on eBay. That doesn't um, sound very. That doesn't sound very Tory in a way. Shouldn't have, you be boosting the market have, by have buying things on Amazon I, instead I, of something? I, I, I did look on Amazon. I think there's one second-hand copy for about a thousand pounds. But, there, are, but there, are, there will be other copies is out there. I'm sure. No, it's not. I wish I'd been entrepreneurial to go through my attic and Mark Pack, what would you recommend? I think I would go for Deborah Mattinson's book, Talking to a Brick Wall which is essentially the history of Labour's recovery through the 80s and the 90s. Um, but the reason I pick it out is what she does. I mean, that's an area that's very well covered in loads of books and documentaries. But what she does is she primarily tells the story through the eyes of what people in focus groups said. Oh, and yeah. it's a very different perspective. What people notice about politics and what people in politics talk about are two only briefly overlapping worlds. And it's a fantastic reminder of how politics actually looks to the public. This looks good, Sienna. They've both picked things that are slightly talking about Labour. Suggests that uh, they, you know, some people are worried about Labour. It sounds like. Um, have you got yeah, a, a recommendation? Yeah. Um, I think something that I found useful is uh, the Resolution Foundation's mm. uh, weekly email, which I really like. And Torsten Bell, and he's kind of on the media quite a lot at the moment, actually, and just talking about the economics of. Um, like the costings of labour policies uh, and just the the dynamics generally and and yeah it's really interesting uh, so I'd recommend signing up to that email as well as of course the Labour List morning email of course. <laughs> And of course, you don't just have to sign up for Sienna's morning email. You can sign up to Mark's, He's, or either of the Mark's. Uh, there's a Con Home one and there's a Lib Dem one, of course. Uh, feel free to sign up to all or any according to your political proclivities. But I would urge you particularly to sign up to the UK to Changing Europe newsletter because that is the best one. And uh, check out the website and the newsletter next week for that report on the manifestos, which will be comprehensive and extremely insightful it lands on monday december the second uh, so lots of good stuff in that chat i think particularly interesting to pick up the uh, constituencies to keep an eye on on election night your card has been marked as it were so this week's competition uh, as ever the answer was in the podcast uh, get in touch and tell me who according to me is the godfather of momentum. I'm not sure he'd like to be known as that. Uh, I was kind of joking. So get in touch. Usual routes, uh, you can get me at Political Yeti on Twitter, or you can get the uh, UK and Changing Europe people. They are at UK and EU on Twitter, or indeed the best way to get them is uh, UK and EU at kcl.ac.uk. That is their email address, and that is where they like the competition answers to go, and that is probably the quickest way to get your hands on a Brexit breakdown mug, as seen in the pictures to accompany this podcast. So that's how you get in touch. The music has, again, been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fang Dango Orchestra. And this has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and a changing Europe, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back on the other side of the election for a post-election analysis episode in the days following the vote. Who knows what we will have to discuss then, but I will gather some experts and we will try to make sense of whatever has happened. Look forward to that. Come back then. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.